With Halloween just around the corner, my family has plenty of tricks and treats planned. But thanks to Pampers, one thing I have never been afraid of is a leaky diaper. Fear no leaks with new and improved Pampers Swaddlers, now featuring a blowout barrier at the back waist that helps prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. We've always looked forward to getting the girls dressed up for Halloween when they were babies. And with Pampers, we knew that in addition to being absolutely adorable in their costumes, they would be dry, clean, and comfortable. With Swaddlers, you can rest assured that you have superior leak protection while keeping baby skin healthy. Pampers Breathe Free Liner wicks away wetness, allowing baby skin to breathe, while the lockaway channels help keep baby skin dry and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologists approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Pamper Swaddlers are available in sizes newborn to size 8 and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you. In my 20s, she sat me down, and I talk about this in the book. She said, why did you never take your writing seriously? And I said, well, of course I did. I love to write. You know, I love to write. She said, no, why did you never pursue it professionally? And to be honest with you, I don't think I even realized this at the time that she said that to me. I just didn't really understand there was such a thing as a Latina writer. I just didn't understand that existed. This is our first episode that resulted from a Twitter meet-cute. One of our listeners suggested that we speak to Tony and Pulitzer Prize-winning playwright Kiara Alegria Hudes, and she enthusiastically agreed on Twitter. But she warned us we'd have to move fast. After penning three musicals and two plays, Kiara is now writing a memoir, and she's about to disappear into her work. But right now, she's here. Here I am. What's the memoir? It's about the late 80s and early 90s when I kind of came of age as a girl in Philadelphia. And it's my spiritual awakening during the time of the crack epidemic, the AIDS crisis, and how I became a writer and a storyteller through a series of kind of spiritual events. You've told so many other people's stories. What is it like now to tell your own? It's really intense. It required a different process of me. I think I've also always told stories under the guise of fiction. Even though my plays come out of family stories. I insist that they're fictional plays because there are fictional elements there. But a memoir, uh, I can't do that. I can't really fudge it. And so to really go back with my memory and insist on accuracy, on my point of view, uh, especially when I'm dealing with things like, did my cousin or did my cousin not pass away from AIDS? And still there's not a clear line answer in the family about it. So what do I do about that? How do I gain clarity and tell the truth when there's still not answers? I also have just 
blackout years, like years I don't really remember with the same clarity in which I remember other years. I thought I did, too. I thought I didn't remember. I thought I didn't know. And what I found is I do actually remember more probably than I'd like to, that telling myself I didn't remember and being active and not remembering was um, a kind of temporary state I let myself be in while I didn't want to deal with some of the stuff from the past. How did you excavate that memory? Through a series of writing rituals. You know, every piece that I've written has a different process, and I learn how to write it as I go. With this piece, it involved taping up all my ancestors' pictures on the wall, so all of my tias who aren't with us anymore, lighting them some candles and saying some prayers so that I felt safe. I felt in a safe place. I felt loved, and I felt trust in my kind of emotional space so that I could then kind of go into the forest not following any path and see what I would discover there. And some of the discoveries were incredible and delightful, and some of them were super painful. Your work and your spirituality, and at the beginning, your mother's spirituality, are so deeply entangled. I mean, she told you you were a playwright. (laughs) She did. I didn't know at the time. I was in my mid-20s, and I had written all my life, as a child might play stickball in the street or might color in a coloring book, that was just fun for me. And I loved it. I did it nonstop. But in my 20s, she sat me down, and I talk about this in the book. She said, why did you never take your writing seriously? And I said, well, of course I did. I love to write. You know, I love to write. She said, no, why did you never pursue it professionally? And to be honest with you, I don't think I even realized this at the time that she said that to me. I just didn't really understand there was such a thing as a Latina writer. I just didn't understand that existed. As soon as she said that to me, I thought, oh, damn, of course. But it had just never really clocked in the currency of what one wants to be when you grow up. I think part of what resonates with me about your story is that you are on this path, and it's the thing you've always wanted to do, which is music. And then all of a sudden, as I've read the story, you go to your mom and you say, I'm bored. And I don't understand how it's possible that I have what I thought I wanted. And I'm bored. And I think where you're lucky is that you realize that fairly young. It was helpful. Sometimes I wish it had come even earlier. But I guess I can't complain, like you say. It was very helpful. I mention in my book that it might possibly be the shortest conversation my mom and I ever had also. It, it wasn't some long walk me through the steps of what she was thinking. She just pointed this thing out, and my heart said yes in, like, the quietest, simplest way possible, and I knew my life changed forever. What was neat in that instance is that I was on my life's path. I had just never named it, and I think that one of the emotional elements of writing the memoir, but also of being a writer in general, is that actually we have life. We know life. We live life. We are saturated, but we don't oftentimes name our experience. And so the process of naming oneself, the process of living your life happens. It happens every day. But the process of really looking at that and describing it and being honest about what you're describing is trickier than one would think. Your mom is a santera. Yes. What is your earliest memory of her practicing? Well, before her practice as a santera really entered my life, 
my earliest memory of is of her, I must have been five or so, taking me outside and praying in Spanish. And uh, my dad didn't speak Spanish, so my Spanish was shaky. So this was kind of a way that she was teaching me Spanish, but it was also a way that she was teaching me prayer. And I definitely remember that God had a feminine ending when she said it and that God had a lot of names. And so I was trying to remember all of the names that God had. And it's a very warm, very warm memory of mine. I felt safe and I felt excited because it was a secret because my dad was an atheist too. So <laughs> my mom had to create a secret practice so that she wouldn't be insulted or questioned. And she let me be witness. And I knew that was special. I knew that invitation was special. So my first memory is is either of blood sacrifice in my living room or of her being a spirit medium. I can't exactly remember which chronologically came first. Both were very terrifying and confusing to me as a child, but also mesmerizing. Um, so it was like that thing I didn't want to see, but I really wanted to see at the same time. And then her path has continued on to, to embrace other traditions as well. So she is like a spiritual woman walking through this world and through many traditions. You've told a lot of your family's stories, again, to your point, fictionalized, but you've drawn a lot of inspiration from them. How do they feel about that? <laughs> uh, they feel good. You know, I they call me every once in a while. I know I got your next play for you. And um, <laughs> it was a learning curve. The first two plays, I was so scared. It's almost like the scaredest I've ever been in my life because what I was scared of is I was about to lose my family member. Like, I had a play. My first play in New York was called Elliot, a Soldier's Fugue. That was before In the Heights. So it really was my first play in New York, and it was based on my cousin, and he came. I had interviewed him, and then he came to see the show, and I was sitting next to him, and he was, like, holding my knee so I wouldn't be shaking so hard. And I thought, like, he's going to see what I did, and I'm going to lose him. I'm going to lose my cousin. I was so scared. And in a few minutes into the play, I just saw, like, tears down his cheek. And that was the rest of it. That's how he behaved the rest of the play. He just wept quietly. And afterwards, he said, thank you. The second play was called Water by the Spoonful. And my cousin, who I wrote that about, she came to see it. That was about addiction and recovery. So that one was like even about more open wounds. And again, I thought, oh, my God, I'm going to lose her. Why did I do this? I'm about to lose my cousin. I'd much rather have my cousin than have a play I wrote. In fact, she also wept, and that play unlocked whole new conversations, things she had never told me about her struggle with addiction and recovery. And so I think they're used to it now, and they kind of find it to be a little bit of a truth vessel. It hurts sometimes, no doubt, but there's also a lot of highs and exhilaration that come with it, too. What is the responsibility of your work? I think— it's to leave a legacy and hopefully one that's really honest about what the struggles were. There's something that I think of as like cultural records equality. There's all sorts of equality, right? There's equality in the law. Obviously, I'm not a litigator. I'm not a representative. I don't draft laws. There's equality in the workplace. Like there's so many different kinds of equality. And the kind I'm concerned with is cultural records equality. Is our story told too, to the extent that other stories are told? That's what I'm concerned with. That's the responsibility of my work, to create that cultural records equality that simply says, we were here, this is what it was like. And because this story has been told by me and also by her and also by him, you know, us together, we cannot be denied. Our existence cannot be denied. How much then does the context of consumption matter? 
if the majority of the audience is still white, mm-hmm. or at least non-Latino, and the majority of the audience is very wealthy, mm-hmm. and we're telling the truth of our stories, mm-hmm. but there are complexities of those stories, and it can be about a life of service and a, a traumatic time. It can be about addiction. Uh, when you have to explore the underbelly of stories that aren't often told to a group of people who may only know this community through your stories, what then? Well, this is part of the question I was asking when I thought it's time to write a book because, (laughs) um, you know, books reach different audiences. And I was ready to see, okay, what other audiences are out there for, for the stories that I'm telling? And I actually have gotten to know the theater audience so well in my career as a playwright that it started infiltrating my writing space and my creative space where I'd already be bracing myself against certain reactions, feeling like how will cultural insiders or outsiders see this. And so I wanted to write for an audience that I had no expectations of. Therefore, I could create who my audience was. When my babies were going through their exploration stage, I had so much to worry about. Falling over, bumping heads, what did she just put in her mouth? The list was endless. But when they were in pamper swaddlers, I knew I never had to worry about a leaky diaper. Swaddlers are great for both baby and mommy. They keep your baby's skin healthy and dry with Pampers Breathe-Free Liner, which wicks away wetness, allowing your baby's skin to breathe. Swaddlers have always given me peace of mind knowing that diaper rash and leaky diapers were not in our future. There's also the blowout barrier at the back waist to help prevent up to 100% of leaks, even blowouts. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic and free of parabens and latex. Your baby deserves that. And they're available in a wide range of sizes from newborn to size eight, and now feature designs with the newest animal characters, Shiloh the Elephant and Freddy the Duck. Having a diaper you can depend on is important, and it's why I have always loved Pampers, the number one pediatrician-recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today to start earning rewards with every diapers and wipes purchase. Not to mention, get great parenting content with Pampers Club. Hi, Latina to Latina listeners. It's Brenda from Tamarindo Podcast. And if you love Latina to Latina, then we know that you're going to love Tamarindo Podcast. And if you're in the L.A. area and can't make it to the Latina to Latina live event, we'd like to invite you to our event on March 28th at 6.30 p.m. We're hosting Amigas Blossoming, a night of celebrating and cultivating blossoming friendships. This will be in Highland Park, and all the details to RSVP for free are at tamarindopodcast.com forward slash events. Hey, Red, what are you up to? Just making sure all the M&M's gifts are wrapped and the balls filled. Remember that one holiday party when we had no M&M's? Oh, boy, I still have nightmares. The cookies? Yeah, you used all the M&M's candies that were meant to decorate the party treats to decorate snowmen. You did it again, didn't you? (laughs) They do look cute, though. Bringing cheer. M&M's for all fun kind. If you are as busy as I am, then I have a life hack for you. I've recently been enjoying Green Chef. It's a USDA certified organic company, and they have a diverse array of meal plans with plenty of options to choose from each week. You can choose paleo, vegan, vegetarian, pescatarian, Mediterranean, heart smart, lean and clean, keto, gluten free, and omnivore. For $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef.us slash latina. 
Their recipes are quick and easy with step-by-step instructions, chef's tips, and photos to guide you along. This week, I made my husband and kiddo salmon and piccata sauce. It tasted fresh and delicious, and my daughter might have even eaten the sauce with a spoon. Best of all, everything is handpicked and delivered right to your door, so no more decision fatigue. Let Green Chef do the meal planning, grocery shopping, and most of the prep for you. For $50 off your first box of Green Chef, go to greenchef.us slash Latina. What was it like the first few sessions in which you were working on In the Heights? <laughs> it was so fun. That was a really fun project. In some ways, each piece you write kind of takes on the the process takes on the spirit of the piece, right? So In the Heights, very uh, strategically, is a piece about our joy and about our celebration and our party, about our hopes and our love. It's such a positive piece, and we wanted it to be that way for very real reasons. There wasn't a lot of portrayal like that. A lot of the actors who came to the piece had mostly been working on, like, crime series as the criminals or, like, possibly crime series as the cops, So those sessions reflected the spirit. It felt like it feels to watch the show, which is playful, kind of pretty up-tempo. We would oftentimes walk around the neighborhood, me and Lynn, and because he grew up in Washington Heights and Inwood, he would show me favorite old spots, like walks down memory lane, a lot of storytelling, telling our family stories, showing pictures of our silly cousins as we found our way to the story. One of the things I find interesting about you as someone who's never met you until today (laughs) is that you are regarded as an intellectual, and yet you also self-present as so heart-first. Does that sound true to you? I mean, is that that me interpreting you, or is that how you see yourself? I I mean, that's that's a huge compliment. I, I feel moved by that description of me. It sounds like someone I would like to be. <laughs> but you're also so dry that so that I can get back to you, like, I'm so moved by that. <laughs> you know, you need a little high and low. I am very dry. I think I learned at a very early age through some experiences to make myself very, very small. And I actually think that my dry demeanor comes out of that. Tell me about one of those times. In my shuffling between families— you know, it was made clear in the household that I was not raised in that my presence was generally in the way and a hindrance. Um, and there were rules about I could not go to every place in the house. I could not interrupt certain family activities that involved other family members. And so I I remember, you know, as early as seven years old saying, OK, I will keep to myself. I will make myself very small and unnoticeable. I can do that. And so I think the dry demeanor comes out of me saying, like, you won't even know I'm here. Like, I will not take up a lot of space. But you take up so much space on the page. I think deciding that I wanted to be a writer, part of that decision when I had that conversation with my mom and when my heart just simply said yes, was a decision instinctively, which was now is the time to take up space. Now is the time to know that you are going to be large. I think that's part of what she was asking me and part of what I said yes to. Again, to reflect you as I see you back to you, you also seem incredibly aligned. Like I I meet a lot of people and interview a lot of people where who they say they are Mm -hmm. is not who shows up in the room or not who shows up on the page, where with you, it actually feels like it is all part and parcel of the same. 
And what I'd like to know as a person who in this moment in my life feels incredibly (laughs) misaligned Mm. is, is that work or is that essence? No, it's work. I might have been born knowing how to do it. Kids are pretty good at it. I think kids are pretty aligned. But I was a good student and learned quickly not to do that so much. And I think the process of deciding to be a Latina artist, of deciding to be a professional woman, of deciding to be very ambitious with my artistic goals and have children, I've had to come up with, like, a lot of strategies of how to actually pull that off how to stay aligned. You know, it's kind of the spiritual version of staying on message. Well, I'm not a brand, but I am a person, and I do try to stay aligned. I asked you earlier what you felt the responsibility of your work was, but I want to ask a follow-up to that, which is, has there ever been a time where you have failed in that responsibility? Yeah, sure. I think that the pain of being a writer, part of the pain of it, and I love what I do deeply, But it is a perpetual series of failures. I can't say I've ever written something that I find perfect. I've definitely had the experience only once or twice where I've written something that I find complete or done that I don't want to continue to rewrite once it's published. But even those I know are flawed pieces. And the flaws are aesthetic Sometimes, like, okay, the language was beautiful, the poetry was beautiful, but the plot was lacking in this certain moment. And sometimes the failure can be, like you said, about the responsibility. So those are probably a little harder to get into. But, you know, did I lean too much into the tragedy or too much into the comedy of this? Is this an overrepresentation of our sorrow and not enough of a staking claim to our joy and our fun. So I'm still thinking about that with writing the memoir. I knew it was going to be about how AIDS took family members from us, how drugs took family members from us. And so I knew I had to really create a math formula where that joy and that love that we shared was just as present or I was going to regret it later. When you are writing, do you still seek approval? I'm trying to less and less Early on in one's career, I mean, you're literally seeking approval. You need a job. Someone has to approve of your writing to produce your play. It is actually part of the hustle. And it can be very confusing. You know, do I need someone's approval to just simply get my work done? Or do I need someone's approval to tell my story? Those, for me, got swapped a few times. And that can be very confusing. And I'm still, you know, it's still a daily question I ask. I'm writing my first book, and I'm realizing that I'm not a writer in the sense that I rather talk about things than put them down on the page. And it is al- sounds both- like a writer to me. <laughs> <laughs> it's both alarming to me and really validating to hear you say that it's never done, because <laughs> I imagine that the writers, like capital W, hit a point where you're like, "That's right, it's all perfect now," and I press send. So if it never feels to you like it's done, what is it driven then by? Deadlines? An an editor who comes in and just tells you it's done? Yeah. If if it weren't for deadlines, it would just be hell. You'd just live with the insufficiency of what you wrote for too long. Then the piece would just become how insufficient it was. But you want to talk about it, but you don't actually want to sit and write it. You know, this is why writers are friends. Like, Lin-Manuel comes over a lot. We're very good friends at this point. And if I could have a nickel for every time he said to me or I said to him, guess what, Lin? I got my next play. Here's what it's about. 
you know, I could get a lot, a lot of corner store candy with all those nickels. For the ones that actually pan out, it's a smaller amount, you know, and same with him to me. Like, we've always got ideas. We're always getting revved about things, and sometimes the ideas go, you know, just kind of fall away. Good, because I need you to focus on the movie. I've been waiting (laughs) for this movie for a very long time. It's going to happen at just the right time. So thank you for waiting for it. But I think the In the Heights movie is happening now for a reason. You know, it's intense. We were When we were first talking about this movie, it feels like forever we've been trying to make it. It was in a different political climate, in a different administration. And that might be the case by the time it comes out, but it might not. And so I think to put a piece about what Latinos know in particular about community and about celebration, about partying, about joy, about family— I think the world could really use that right now. I don't think this is just a story for Latinos. I actually think, like, we're onto some really good secrets that this nation's going to benefit from. I think the In the Heights movie is—it's so much about what do we give our children. It's so much about how do we celebrate, even with the modest means that we have, how do we hold that up to the sky and say thank you and throw a dance party and sing our joy and I've walked a long path within the Heights, and so I think I've earned the right to write a few surprises in there, too, so that people who think they know everything about In the Heights, there will be some new some new elements, too. How do you separate, can you separate, Giada the person from the creator? Oh, dear. <laughs> I can't. I have to keep my life very simple because I am not good at multitasking. Well, let's see. So— I don't know if it's Kiara the person or Kiara the playwright, but she writes. She cooks dinner for her husband and children. She takes walks. She does some activism work. And that's actually pretty much it. There's a lot of other things she could do. No friends? I've been blessed with some friends, and they tend to be the ones that are very much understand that when I see them in three years, I still love them. Because of your work or because of your introversion? Because of my work. Because I don't have time. I, Kiara the playwright and Kiara the person don't have time to be a true friend all the time, huh. you know? But I do have time to have a family, have my writing life be as full as I want it to be. And that's pretty much it, actually. Did you ever make that overt to friends? I've certainly had a few conversations with friends. I think some friends kind of understand that instinctively and others— have said, you know, you you ignore me. Like, where are you? I need to lean on you more frequently. And I've had to be really honest and say, I'm so sorry. I can't provide that for you as a friend. So I identify with that and at the same time feel that I am almost not ready to admit that to myself, to say I don't have the time mm-hmm. because there's something about that that, while true, seems selfish. Yes. See, here is the thing, okay? This is why Kiara the writer and Kiara the human are not different because that is the same in art and life. You can feel so bad saying no to a friend because it feels like, oh, I'm a bad friend. Which must mean I'm a bad person. Which must mean I'm a bad person. In fact, if you're honest about it and say, you know what, I hear you and I'm so sorry I cannot provide that to you in our friendship. I'm not equipped to do that. I'm so sorry that hurts you, but I'm not going to lie and say I can and then fail again. That actually saying no to two things is just saying yes to the things you're really committing to saying yes to. That is like every day I have to put that into practice. I really got a lot of life organizing 
to do when I get out of here. <laughs> you referred to your work as your theater habit. Is it more like a chemical addiction or like a like runner's high? Oh, dear. It is kind of the bedrock of my social life, too, because I don't have the time to commit to outside friends like I would like to. A lot of my friends are in the theater, too. So, yeah, it is a little bit like a chemical addiction. It's one of the times I get to be social. I get to go into the rehearsal room. I get to be around a lot of people. So it's like I'm always jonesing for that. It's all of those things. How do your kids feel about your work? (laughs) Like, do they get that you're a big deal? (laughs) My daughter was... She's 11, and I think she is proud of being an In the Heights baby. I think she's very proud of that. <laughs> and she Because you went into labor in the middle of In I the went Heights. into labor in the middle of In the Heights, right outside of the box office. And I, you know, I had to go to the hospital, and she was born, you know, while the show was being performed that night. So she takes a lot of pride in that. And when I won the Pulitzer, she was so proud. It almost makes me emotional. She was telling everyone. I said to her, please don't tell everyone. And she looked at me like I was crazy. Why would she not tell everyone? She was so proud of me. And so she told her classmates, and she couldn't say the word Pulitzer properly. She said Putzler, which was very sweet. I think, honestly, she probably takes it for granted a little bit at this point. Like, okay, when are we going backstage? That kind of thing. I'm like, oh, we don't always have to go backstage. We can just watch and be regular audience members, too. (laughs) Thank you so much. Thank you. I know you have a busy life, so let me make getting to our show even easier. You can catch us through your smart speakers. That's right. Google and Alexa know what's up. Just say, play Latina to Latina podcast to your Echo, Google Home, or whatever setup you have, and make your cooking, cleaning, or relaxing at home more interesting. Thanks for joining us today. Latina to Latina was originally co-created with Bustle. Now the podcast is owned and executive produced by Juleka Lentigua-Williams and me. Maria Muriel was the sound designer on this episode. We want to hear from you. Tell us who you want to hear from and how you're making the show a part of your life. Email us at hola at latinatolatina.com. Remember to subscribe or follow us on Radio Public, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you're listening. A little update on our March 27th live recording of Latina to Latina. You did it. You sold out our early bird tickets. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. There is still time to grab your regular tickets while they last. Again, the details. We are partnering with our friends at Poderistas to bring you a conversation with New York Times bestselling author Sochil Gonzalez. It is happening at the William Vale in Brooklyn on March 27th. You can find the link to purchase tickets on our Instagram page at Latina to Latina or online at Alicia Menendez XO. I cannot wait to see you.